0: Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. I've worked in the music business for over half my life, and one of the great privileges is to hear an amazing unknown artist and then have the opportunity to introduce them to the world. So I can only imagine what Jonathan Poneman was feeling the first time he heard Nirvana.
1: Steve, put yourself in my position. And somebody hands you a tape with Kurt Cobain's voice singing. I mean, how much of a genius do you need to be? Not much to hear the brilliance in that voice. You know, for me, it was like finding this remarkable piece of art or this remarkably gifted human being and what do you do to shepherd this person to a place of full manifestation? And uh, some people would say that I was lucky, and I would say, hell yes, I was lucky. But you know, at the end of the day, his brilliance would have made it through one way or the other. I'm convinced.
0: Before Nirvana literally changed the fortune of pop records. Jonathan and his partner Bruce Pavitt were rolling right along, putting out records by Soundgarden, Mudhoney, and Green River, who featured future members of Pearl Jam. Eventually, the label and its artists created a musical and cultural revolution. Now, if I gave my episodes a name, I suppose that this one would be called Sleepless in Seattle. So sit back and listen to how a kid from Toledo parlayed his bar mitzvah money into one of the world's coolest record labels. I want to start. I want to go all the way back rather than start in the middle and work our way back. I'm. I want to go all the way back to the beginning. And if you could tell me a little bit about growing up, what kind of music were you hearing in the house? And how did you get into how did music become a part of your life?
1: Well, I grew up with an older brother and sister, my brother being 11 years older than me, my sister being 13 years older, respectively, mm-hmm. grew up in Toledo, Ohio. And I was born in 1959, so I grew up during the, came of age during the 60s and 70s for the most part. And in the Midwest at that time, it was a golden age of AM radio, and the big AM station, the powerhouse for where I grew up in Toledo, was Detroit Windsor's CKLW, the Big Eight. Big Eight, yeah. So I grew up listening to a lot of the music that was beamed down from Windsor, which is a lot of Motown, the Beatles, the great one-hit wonders of the 60s, and, of course, a lot of Canadian content, okay. the Peters, Edward Bear, the Guess Who, et cetera.
0: Were your parents playing music as well, or were, were, were most of your influences from your brother and sister?
1: Most of my influences, well, initially, my influences were from my brother and sister. My mother was a bit of a jazz fiend, but that was a little too abstract for for me at that time. I'd say a pivotal, I've told this story a bunch, and I apologize for repeating it, but my father was a physician in the greater Toledo area. This is back in the days when Physicians would make re- would regularly make house calls, and I'd go out and make some of the house calls with them in the evening. And when we were driving back from a suburb in Toledo, past the Toledo airport, this I was about seven years old, seven or eight years old. We stopped by the airport because I used to like to look at the planes and hang out. I had a child's fascination and wonder for jets. And uh, my father was a news fiend. He was always buying newspapers, and whenever he would go anywhere, he'd always stop in at a shop and pick up a newspaper or a magazine. And this was no exception. So we went into the news store at the Toledo Express Airport. My father strikes up a conversation with these two people, who seemed closer to my siblings' age than my father's. They were definitely adults, though. So one of them had curly hair, and the other was a shorter gentleman. Anyway, so to get to the story, my father went up and struck a conversation with these two strangers, and um, he introdu- my father went on to introduce them to me, and they were Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, who had played in Toledo at the University of Toledo Fieldhouse, the evening before, but they were early enough, and I think it was The Sound of Silence. That's why I was doing a quick bit of math to figure out how old I was, because I think the tour was The Sound of Silence tour. They were big enough to have been written up in the Toledo newspaper, which is how my father recognized them, but not so big that anybody else knew who they were while they were waiting to fly commercial up to Madison, Wisconsin for their next show. And I'll always remember. Paul Simon saying, you got a hip dad there, John. So I stayed up night after night after that, listening to the local radio, including CKLW, trying to hear Simon and Garfunkel songs, which got me addicted to the radio.
0: When did you start buying records yourself?
1: Um, I started buying records myself very soon thereafter. I uh, found that, you know, I wasn't, I was a bit of a, uh, Uncoordinated kid when I was young. I was looking for something to identify with, and I found it quickly in music. And so I would go down to there's a record store called Reese Records in Toledo. I'd scour the bins, and remember my parents gave me five dollars, and I could pick one or the other record. And I remember or I could pick one record with the $5. And I remember it coming down to two records I was holding in my hand. One was Magic Bus by The Who. And the other was Nas Nas by The Nas. Wow. And I ended up buying uh, Magic Bus, which uh, both uh, Todd Rundgren and The Who figured prominently in my adolescent music listening. So,
0: Do you, do you know what attracted you to those two records in particular?
1: Yeah. Um, the Nas looked really cool. They looked like a classic British pop band, even though they were from Philadelphia. The cover of the, the graphics on that record were really, you know, classic. And The Who just looked cool. You know, it was all visual. It wasn't uh, the music inside. But it so happened that the music inside was great. Both those records are ones that I still come back to.
0: So um, now that now that you're starting to buy your own rock and roll records, when did you start going to concerts or shows?
1: Well, I know the evening of my bar mitzvah, while my friends and family were having a party, one particular buddy of mine and and I snuck out to see Randy Newman and Jim Croce play at the Tol- University of Toledo Student Union, not to be mistaken with the Fieldhouse. I saw a lot of my early shows at the University of toledo. um I think the very first show that I went and saw was with my i think it was my aunt Sylvia who took me to see the Happenings. i don't know if you remember them they had, I don't a, a, they had a hit with the song See you in september and uh it was a very on rock rock show. <laughs> The first rock show that I remember seeing by a band that I cared about was when my brother took me and my buddies up to Cobo Hall and we saw Savage Grace, John Mayall, Blues Breakers, and Steppenwolf. Steppenwolf was headlining Cobo Hall. And that was, I, I think I was like 10 or 11 years old. I remember one year, my um, parents would take me for some culture. We would go to Stratford, Ontario. And uh, one year we, after going to Stratford, instead of rebounding back to, or ricocheting back to Toledo, we drove on to Toronto. And I was a bit of a fan of the Guess Who. This was around American Woman, Share the Land, in and around that era. I remember going to a Rock show that my mother dutifully sat through for eleven hours. It had Lighthouse and a lot of the bigger Canadian bands at the time, and the Guess Who headlined, and uh, it's pretty great. It was at an outdoor arena in Toronto. I don't remember what year it was, but uh, again, I was eleven, twelve years old, something like that.
0: So, did you um, do did, did you start playing music? Like, did you pick up an instrument around
1: that time, too? I did. I started playing, well, I first started playing the organ, and uh, I basically started learning that. Oh, how old were you? Uh, I was about okay. 11, 12 years old. And I started playing it because I was a fan of Steppenwolf. There's was a prominent keyboard. I mean, they're known for their guitars, but there's prominent keyboard. And Goldie McJohn, I think is his name. Okay. Saint Nicholas. I can't remember. I remember their names, but I don't remember what yeah, instruments sure. they played. But um, yeah, I picked up organ and then I picked up guitar and uh, never did much with them.
0: I am, I am curious about something that I read, um, not just on Wikipedia, but in some in some of the other articles that I researched. You got kicked out of high school. Why did you get kicked out of high school?
1: So I went to several high schools over my high school career. The first one being in Toledo, which I didn't get kicked out of. The second one that I got kicked out of, or the first school that I got kicked out of, was the second high school that I went to, which was uh, Cranbrook Academy, which is located in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And um, I got, the thing that eventually got me kicked out was smoking pot in front of my cross-country coach. Um <laughs> There was a system, a point system, that you had to earn a certain amount of points to eventually get kicked out of school. So it was the sum of a lot of different misbehaviors that eventually landed me outside of Cranbrook.
0: So the the story that I read was that you were then in Arizona going to, to high school?
1: Uh, no, Arizona was after Cranbrook.
0: Oh, you know, that's what I mean, after Cranbrook. So did the whole family move to Arizona?
1: Uh, my mother and father did yeah oh, okay attempting retirement my father lasted for a couple of years and then scurried back to Toledo my mother ended up spending the last 20-25 years of her life in Arizona
0: okay so now we're getting closer to the the start of your um your infamy let's 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 skirt up to Washington at the University of Washington what were you studying
1: Well, when I came out here, it was due to some uh, really crazy circumstances, but I ended up moving, the day that Elvis Presley died, 1977, my then girlfriend and I packed up her parents' car, which we had inherited, again, long story, Mm -hmm. and drove out from Grand Rapids, Michigan, to Greeley, Colorado, where we spent the night, and then on to Bellingham, Washington. And in Bellingham, my then-girlfriend enrolled at Western Washington State College, as it was then known, and I pumped gas and did anything but go to class because high school had been such a unmitigated disaster for me. So eventually, when I ended up going to the University of Washington, I was headed for a Communications degree, broadcast journalism, which so, is what got me involved with KCMU.
0: Right. So, what? So, you started your own show on KCMU?
1: Um, I inherited it. Well, yeah, I had my own regular shift. Mm-hmm. But what got me um, involved with local bands in Seattle is I ended up inheriting a local music program called Audio Oasis, which is still on the air to this day on KEXP, which is what became of KCMU. KCMU was a laboratory station mm-hmm. for the University of Washington. And then now many years later, it's become a much more independent entity, a uh, internet radio juggernaut, amongst other things, and uh, terrestrial radio as well in the Seattle area. But anyway, I started working there in the early eighties as a volunteer, I was a volunteer the whole time but i I got into different kinds of positions and mischief while working at the station
0: so what kind of what kind of music was happening on the Seattle scene at the time?
1: I think the best way to describe it is it was this sort of eclectic mix that was common in a lot of cities with big universities. you'd have a lot of fake or British-influenced bands, bands with singers with fake British accents, of which I was in one. And uh, then there were hardcore bands, a lot of punk rock bands, and then there were bands who were trying to sound like R.E.M. Um, I guess one of the more credible and influential bands in the area of that time was Young Fresh Fellows, a couple of whose members actually went on to play in R.E.M., Scott McCoy and Kurt Locke. Kurt actually didn't play in our but uh, he plays in the Fastbacks, who are another Seattle perennial punk rock band. Also figured heavily in... They're one of the bands that thread the old days of sub-pop with present-day sub-pop, actually.
0: So how did you decide to start a label?
1: Bruce uh, Pappett, who actually founded the sub-pop concept, Started the label in 1986 with the release of Sub Pop 100. It was then a sole proprietorship. It existed in his bedroom and in his mind largely. And then uh, there was a the second EP by the band Green River, who later spawned Mother Love Bone, Mud Honey, and Pearl Jam, in in that order. And that, the original uh, Green River record, Come On Down, the first record came out on Dutch East India's record label, which was overseen by a teenager named Gerard Cosloy and a conflict editor, music critic, and uh, later the founder of Matador Records. Anyway, so the second sub-pop record, was the second Green River record, which was called Dry as a Bone. And Bruce and I teamed up soon. Well, actually, it was right around the time that Dry as a Bone came out that we started making plans for releasing a single and an EP by Soundgarden. I had joined up originally as an investor in those two projects, in the two Soundgarden projects, but we decided long before those projects came to final fruition that we were going to make a full-time venture of sub-pop as a record label, which we finally got the nerve and the money together to do in early 1988. And we opened our doors as a full-time record label on April 1st, 1988.
0: Uh, I want to go, I want to go back. I understand that seeing Soundgarden for the first time was a seminal moment for you. And I'm just wondering if you could just kind of replay that evening for us and and what it was about the band that struck you so hard.
1: I should just mention that a buddy of mine, Gordon Raphael, who is a record producer, just published his memoirs, or is having them published. He uh, produced the first Strokes record, amongst other things. He was at the very first... Soundgarden show that I saw as well it was also the first time he saw them, but uh, I was I had was the host of Audio Oasis, which is Seattle's local music program on KCMU, and I was as the host I was also the host of a live music component which took place at the Rainbow Tavern in the University District of Seattle every Tuesday night. There would be the bands would split the door with KCMU um, because KCMU was a publicly funded radio station. We needed to go out and earn our keep as well. So on this particular night, I was it was a band called Skin Yard who later went on to their own bit of fame. And uh, the headlining band was a band that I had heard a lot about but hadn't seen, which was Soundgarden. And um, I was driving home, or I was actually taking the bass player of one of my countless bands at that point in time, uh, taking him home. But I needed to drop by and settle for the evening at the tavern, at the Rainbow Tavern for this event. And uh, I went in and uh, right towards the beginning of Soundgarden's set and was completely captivated through the whole thing. I recognized Kim Thiel from who was uh, the guitar player of Soundgarden at that point in time, as he always has been. But he was also a DJ at KCMU. And uh, I had no idea that this nerdy guy who I'd see at KCMU was such a rock star. And Chris Cornell, even at that point in time, barely out of his teens, was a fully mature performer and, you know, great voice, great personality, totally raucous and reckless and everything that you would want, you know, a young Soundgarden to be. They were fully formed, playing in front of 30 people, half of whom were sitting on chairs during their performance because their performance was so dynamic and so spellbinding that people did, you know, it eventually became a Pavlovian response when you hear that music to jump into the air, stage dive, what have you. But at this point in time, it was so spellbinding that I remember people sitting there just like looking at, looking at the band completely mesmerized. Anyway, I was one of those people, except I I wasn't sitting in a chair. I was at the back back by the soundboard going, holy, I can't believe I'm witnessing this. So I walked up to the stage afterwards and I introduced myself to Chris. Mm -hmm. I said something along the lines of, you don't know who I am probably, but my name is Jonathan. I'm the host of Audio Oasis at KCMU. put on this event, and that was one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. And if I do nothing more... Right. That's what I was thinking. What I actually said is I'd like to put out your records, but I was saying to myself is my own musical career is going nowhere quick. Before I go back and become an accountant or a fast food cook for my the better part of my professional career, I want to do one successful thing with music. And I knew that putting out a record by Soundgarden would be it because they were going places.
0: So when you got to the point of being able to put the record out on the newly formed sub-pop on April 1st, 1988.
1: <laughs> well, we, put it, we actually, we put out the Soundgarden records ahead of that.
0: Oh, we did. Okay.
1: Yeah. We put them out uh, in 1987. I can't remember. I know that the single came first, obviously. It's a limited edition of 500 copies. And then we put out Screaming Life after that. Um, but the reason why we celebrate April first as our birthday, even though Soundgarden predates or sub pop predates that as a company, is that was a f- that was the day that we opened as a full time record label.
0: Oh, okay. So, how did you know how to start a record label?
1: I didn't. <laughs> you know, Bruce said, well, yeah. "Put out." a couple of records, I was completely novice. A complete novice at that point. And uh, I just took his lead and that which I didn't know, I you know, I read Dispute, Business of Music and I think there was some version of the Donald Passman book Um, at that time, you know, read some books about the music industry and the way things work and applied a little bit of the pretzel logic that is employed by the music industry and kind of went for it.
0: How were you able to scrape together the money to get it going?
1: Well, Steve, that's interesting. Once again, the same bar mitzvah that uh, I ducked out of, or I didn't duck out of the bar mitzvah, I ducked out of the uh, party.
0: The reception, yeah.
1: Yeah, the reception. Um, I received uh, some pre. Gifts from my family members and my physician father's patients, all of which my mother dutifully stashed away and kept from me, as well as some savings bonds from when I was uh, a youngster. Anyway, it was a combination of about $10,000 from that and then some money that Bruce and I borrowed. We borrowed about $19,000 $19,000 to open the doors of SubHop, and I borrowed another $2,000 to get Screaming Life and uh, the Nothing to Say Hunted Down single out. I borrowed it from friends, family, anybody who would loan me money. I borrowed from KCMU, disc jockeys. I had no pride, no <laughs> shame.
0: And how did those first few records do?
1: Um, Well, the first one was Screaming Life, and it did quite well. Um, Coming after it was Rehab Doll by Green River. Mm -hmm. It did quite well. We did really well. We were uh, so enchanted by our early success that we thought that we could, you know, make a go of it over the long term. And uh, it's worked out pretty well so far.
0: For sure. So, did, in those early days, did the two of you have a discussion as to what this label would be about? What it was you guys wanted to accomplish with it?
1: Well, we Bruce had been. At, I mean, this always sounds like a punchline, but it's very true. He had studied punk rock when he went to Evergreen University, which is kind of a, it's a school, very good school. Um, in Olympia, Washington, where you can pretty much determine your own course of study and your own degree, et cetera. Um, And so he decided to make a study of American independent music. And uh, he had determined that a lot of the best music, most authentic music being made in the United States and in Canada for that matter, was happening outside of the major media centers, which at that time would be New York, Toronto, Nashville, and Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Nashville being obviously music-centric around country music at that time. But he noted bands from Portland, uh, from Lawrence, Kansas, uh, Boston, Seattle, Chicago, all great, you know, many great cities, but many of whom were not meet, no longer media centers. So for all intents and purposes, a band like Naked Raygun from Chicago could have been from Des Moines, with, uh, Iowa, as far as their legitimacy within the greater music industry. So Sub Pop was basically started with the idea that we were going to take a focus on uh, We were going to focus on a region that was not part of this major media centrism. And we were going to focus on it. And it so happened that the most happening scene at the time that we were starting to label on a full-time basis coincidentally happened to be going on in our backyard, which was the Seattle Olympia music scene of the late 80s. So it was a natural fit for us to focus on what was happening in Seattle, not only because we lived there, but because it was such a vital scene and wholly underexplored at that point in time. I mean, it's hard for people to remember just how, you know, Seattle had such a pivotal impact on the culture and music and the music industry in the late 80s and early 90s, that people, particularly those of us who were on the ground and lived through it, it's hard to remember a time when Seattle wasn't impactful in the way that it became. But it was very much a two-bit, working class, you know, off-the-grid sort of town. You know, a town with a proud heritage in, mu- in the music industry and as far as music goes in general. But it was nothing much at that point in time, except for it was the home of jimi Hendrix of heart and of radio station k a s w which had the proud distinction of breaking a c d c or so they claim for North America.
0: It's good enough for me yeah <laughs> glad glad they broke so The perception for us outside of Seattle was that, in terms of the music scene, that sub-pop was ground zero. Was that the feeling that you guys had as well?
1: Not that sub-pop was ground zero, but that we were at ground zero. Ground zero, it was... We weren't the bomb, but we were living in Hiroshima to carry the ground zero analogy further. You know, we... we design things and Bruce and I are savvy savvy enough about pop music history in the United States that we were able to summon certain make certain illusions about our brand and our the roles that we played in it and in its marketing that people could connect certain dots but we didn't create, you know, contrary to what some of our marketing may have suggested in the early days, we didn't, we weren't uh, Don Kirshner. You know, we didn't manufacture any of this stuff. We helped market it by employing a photographer, Charles Peterson, who was at all the shows and was a great photographer anyway. And employing Jack and Dino, who was recording all the bands anyway. He was, uh, besides being a great engineer, he was also a member of the scene himself in being the guitar player for Skinyard, who was the band that played with Soundgarden that first night that I saw them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had regular go to people. In the same way that James Jamerson would play bass on most of those early Motown singles, we had a team of people that would congregate and who we would rely on um, in establishing sub-pop as an early presence in the Seattle music scene. Once or as an incredible presence. Go ahead.
0: No, I was just ask. so once you hung the shingle up, were was it like... Uh, bees to honey with regards to independent artists looking for a place to call so there home.
1: there had been other record labels before sub pop there was cz there was pop llama there's green monkey the list goes on but we were the first label to establish c r our seattle presence as being a selling point and to create the illusion that the only music that was being made in Seattle was coming out on Sub Pop even though there was all these other labels and all the I mean it just, it's just marketing 101 you're trying to obliterate the competition and the best way to do that is to pretend they don't exist
0: so well, how did you how did you go up what were some of your tactics with regards to um well, we didn't act- above the fray.
1: we didn't actively think <clears throat> in terms of let's make conrad uno of pop llama go away we wanted to be supportive of the scene <clears throat> after all the scene was enabling us to do what we wanted to do it's just that we were very focused on distribution on graphics on creating a whole identity and a whole system that was cooperative with our uh, with the independent world, but was in opposition to the major corporate business and way of uh, marketing that we found to be, generally speaking, false and lacking much. I mean, this is making such a gross generalization at this point in time, but you have to think about the bunker mentality when we're going into business with hyper-focus. The enemy is the major labels. The friends are the independent operators, store owners, bands, uh, fans, the people who are unaffiliated other than by their own fandom Uh, to the marketplace as a whole. Does that make any sense?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So in addition to marketing the artists, you were marketing Sub Pop at the same time. Yes. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. You know, Motown, simultaneous to marketing The Supremes and The Temptations and Smokey Robinson, would, you know, they, they market themselves as well. So people would come to recognize the Motown brand as a quality brand. Same thing with Stax, same thing with any number, Atlantic, Columbia, any number of one time independent labels that eventually affiliated and became part of a larger system.
0: Like any scene there, you know, any good scene at least, there's a you know, a handful of spectacular bands
1: and the then buckets bu-
0: yes and then buckets and buckets and buckets of buckets of bands that just
1: <laughs>
0: you know you want to help you want to support but they're just never going to make it that being said given the period of time given the influence that that era had what was it like? I, I, I was, I've never been to Seattle, and I so I've never you know I can't even imagine what that must have been like in that scene with the bands that you had, the bands that some most of which were not maybe not most of which, but many of which you signed to Sub Pop for their earliest records, some of which you didn't get to sign, but it must have been an incredible scene to go out night after night to see these bands play live.
1: Well, it was it was an incredible scene, but it grew out of something very small and lacking in self-awareness for in good ways and in not bad ways but in ways that i think would later uh hurt some people that lack of self-awareness because when you are lacking that self-awareness you can oftentimes start to believe things that can ultimately be destructive, not just to one's career, but to one's life. But that's for another conversation. As far as Seattle goes, it was, you know, Seattle at the time, it's it's a very different city now than it was in the 80s. In the 80s, it was still a working-class city, basically a two-company town the two companies being the University of Washington, which is an educational institution, but a big employer nonetheless, and Boeing. And so you had this mixture of, of blue collar identity in academia, and academia, and it was an inexpensive place to live on top of it. And a lot of artists, high degree of literacy and education. So it was a very unique blend. And famously, you have the clouds and it's weather. And um, it all lent itself to this particular feeling that prevailed in Seattle for many years before the scene actually exploded. You know, now, you know, you have all the techs, many of which, many of whom were start startups or even pre-startups, at the time that SubHop was in its uh, first wave of success. But that's come to fully dominate the city's mentality, its skyline, everything. So if you do make your uh, journey out here one day, Steve, you will see a different city than the city we're talking about. Okay. Right now. Yeah. But um, forgive me. What were we?
0: No no, 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 no. I was asking you about the scene and what what it was like going to see so many great bands night after night.
1: So early on, when I moved from the Midwest to Washington State, I spent the first two years in Bellingham, Washington, which is where Western Washington State College, now university, is located. I then moved to Seattle in 1979. And at the time, there, most of the shows would happen in taverns. And performance art spaces, or spaces that were rented specifically for putting on punk rock shows, and a lot of a lot of shows happened in art galleries. It was primarily like when I first saw DNA, if you know the No New York record.
0: Absolutely do. yeah. Seeing
1: them at the Graven Image Gallery. First time I saw Husker Du was in the gallery. Um, bands that would come through and make it to the Pacific Northwest, not many of whom did, oftentimes would play in art galleries, occasionally in Chinese restaurants, in odd these odd venues. But the scene was so intimate at the time that you would see the same 50 to 100 people at every show. And only in the late 80s did the audience start to really expand and then finally, by the time that the Seattle scene erupted, you'd start seeing thousands of people at every show.
0: And Nirvana were were they were you aware of them on the scene before they came to you with their uh, initial singles?
1: I was not. They didn't come to me. They actually uh, they in the scene that they were a part of, which was a much smaller scene, it had a lot to do with Aberdeen and Olympia. In Olympia, Washington, they were already coming up, which is where Evergreen State College is located. Um, but I only found out about them when they went and recorded a demo tape with Dale Crover playing drums, Dale Crover being with the Melvins. And uh that tape was recorded by Jack and Dino and I had happened to ask Jack if he had heard anything interesting in the studio that might be of interest to me and to the then form early formulate the early days of sub pop. Mm -hmm. Um, And he had mentioned this kid who had come in from Aberdeen who he had never heard of before. And he, he said, I don't know what to compare it to. I just know it's amazing. And so I got a copy of the tape from him and it blew my mind. Yeah. Nothing more I could say, really.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, his instincts, your instincts were uh, right on the money.
1: Steve, put yourself in my position <clears throat> and somebody hands you a tape with Kurt Cobain's voice singing. I mean, how much of a genius do you need to be? Not much to hear the brilliance in that voice. You know, for me, it was like finding this remarkable piece of art or this remarkably gifted human being. And what do you do to shepherd this person to a place of full manifestation? and uh some people would say that I was lucky, and I would say, "Hell, yes, I was lucky, but you know at the end of the day, his brilliance would have made it through one way or the other. I'm convinced
0: sure, but you know that being said i mean your your receptacles have to be wide open to be able to to be able to hear that
1: I was a twenty something year old person who was like a lifelong or better part of my lifelong music addict. Mm-hmm. I had nothing much. I wasn't like studying to be a doctor, or raising a family. I was pretty well tuned into music 24 seven. So anyway, I was, I'm not saying that to be self-deprecating. I'm just saying the situation was such that it, there's a feeling of inevitability to it.
0: Artistically, were you got you and Bruce at all involved creatively with any of the artists
1: we were involved with all of the art.
0: No, I mean creatively. Yeah, what, I mean it, not, we we were not not songwriters, but
1: no. So, well, that's another story. Okay. Um, we were primarily in sequence, helping sequence records, helping choose which photos would we would use on covers, that sort of thing. We weren't. We wouldn't get in and say you know, change that minor to a major and, you know, augment this chord and drop that chorus and do all that. We weren't that sort of, th- we weren't that interventionist.
0: Did you guys, go, did you guys go into the studio at all while bands were recording or did you? Did you many, did many you did?
1: times, but oh, we okay. would go in basically as support and objective ears, not as, you know, okay, I own this session and uh, I want you to put some sweetener in here yeah
0: <laughs> let's get this let's get this on the radio
1: <laughs> yeah right exactly we we would dream of that sort of thing but it never come to pass we would be like yeah it sounds cool yeah turn it up that's great you know bruce would make proclamations like this is going to change the course of a generation but it was always said ironically
0: So what about the, you know, the ups and downs of running a business like this? I mean, you guys, I don't know how long it was until you were in the black. Did you ever get in the black in the early days?
1: Yes, we were in the black for the period of time between, right after Nevermind came out, we were Mm -hmm. in the black. And then we ended up doing a deal with Warner Music and we really went into the black, but then from a business perspective, we started spending stupid money on stupid well, great bands, but bands that were not really smart investments in the way that we were investing in them, mm-hmm. so we quickly went into the red again
0: did you come did you come back out?
1: Oh, yes, we're back out now awesome. that have been since like twenty two thousand six. Onward, we've been in the black.
0: Okay. And so the the music that's most associated with sub-pop initially was that grunge movement. and the, But there was more than just grunge music that you guys were putting out at the time, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. You put out a band called Les Dougues from Angers, France. You put out a band called The Walkabout's. I don't know if you're familiar with the Glitter Beat record label. It's a great record yeah. label in Europe that exists right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris Ekman, who is the uh, owner of that label, used to play in a band called The Walkabouts with his then-girlfriend Carla Torgerson. They were a great Seattle band that played very different music than the kind of music that Sub Pop was associated with at the time, but every bit part of the community. But people naturally gravitated towards the harder rocking stuff, right. be it Green River, Soundgarden, Mud, Honey, Afghan Wigs, Nirvana. For years and years, that was the real popular stuff, the fluid. And then, you know, in the early 2000 era, there came to be the shins, Postal Service, Iron and Wine, and Band of Horses, and those bands ended up uh, usurping what the meaning that grunge had had to the label initially. So now we're just seen as a bunch of old folks putting out records.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I do remember at the at the time back in the back in the early '90s, because I, I, you know, there were a lot of Canadian bands that. Really, that some of which ended up on Sub Pop, but many of which
1: to this know. day we still put out a lot of Canadian bands.
0: Yeah, and there was just this idea of if you're an independent act, Sub Pop is was the number one your number one choice for where you wanted to be. Guilt by association, I suppose.
1: Oh, <laughs> well, we did put out Nevermind the Mollusks, which was uh, Sloan Eric's trip. Idea do Nord and uh, who is the other band? It's oh, jail.
0: jail, jail, yeah. So now you've started another label, Hardly Art. Yes. And how? What is the distinction?
1: Well, the distinction was is that sub pop became, you know, the idea was is hardly art is. Like a, we refer to it as a, like a little sibling, a baby sister, baby brother label. Mm-hmm. It's uh, got a lot of the same spirit and familial qualities that you would recognize in a sub pop label, but uh, it's doesn't have the baggage, doesn't have the grunge legacy. It's something that we can do smaller projects with and we can do business experimentation as well as musical experimentation. Meaning we don't, Sub Pop in many ways is turned into a conventional record label in terms of the way that we did business with Hardly Art. We could do it in a much looser way, just because it didn't have the expectations that scientists Sub Pop did, if that makes any sense.
0: Oh, absolutely does. Is is Sub Pop still um, owned partially by Warner?
1: By Warner Music, 49%.
0: Still, okay. All
1: right. But I'm the majority shareholder in the managing venture, so I'm the person that keeps the ending man.
0: In 2013, Jonathan started talking to the press about how he had discovered that he had contracted Parkinson's disease. It's obvious, though, that Parkinson's never slowed him down or curbed his enthusiasm for music as Sub Pop continues to find and release the music of great new indie artists. You can check out the current roster and their latest releases at subpop.com. While you're there, sign up for their newsletter and get the latest Sub Pop news delivered right to your inbox. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Creationist. If you haven't listened before, please check out some of our other interviews, like episode 17 with Susan Rogers talking about working with Prince in the studio.
1: On Sign of the Times, now he's approaching the age of 30. Now he needs to make a man's record, not a boy's record. He can't be talking about lust. He needs to talk about love. So he's maturing. His worldview is maturing. And he's well aware that rap and hip-hop are going to be dominating. They'll be dominating the charts now. And that he doesn't do rap and hip-hop. So it's a man's, I wouldn't say swan song, but it's a man establishing his legacy or in hopes of establishing his legacy.
0: If you have a chance, please rate and review The Creationist on your favorite podcast platform. It helps us find new listeners. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Ferrant. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast.
1: <laughs>